0: welcome to another episode of the geopolitics and empire podcast today we're talking to dr osvaldo zavala who is a professor of contemporary latin american literature and culture at the college of staten island and the graduate center at the city university of new york we'll be talking about his latest book los carteles no existen narcotrafico y cultura in mexico or the cartels don't exist Narcotraffic and culture in mexico which looks at how the popularized um, narco myth and narrative is perhaps not so true, false, and that the Mexican and U.S. governments perhaps uh, have a hand in managing the the drug cartels. So he'll tell us all about that. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Dr. Zavala.
1: No, thank you for the invitation. Happy to be here with you and, and your audience.
0: Now, one of the powerful messages uh, of your book is that this narrative that we, Mexicans, Americans, uh, and the world, have of the drug cartels in Mexico is a myth. It's a false narrative to an extent, put together by perhaps we can say a a witting or unwitting complicity between mass media, uh, ambitious journalists, and the Mexican and American security state apparatus uh, or structures. And it's this idea that, you know, of the drug cartels popularized by Netflix TV shows such as Narcos, uh, films such as Sicario, uh, telenovelas, or soap operas uh, on Mexican television, that the state is subordinate to the drug cartels, kind of like a cartoonish, if you will, Tom and Jerry or Looney Tunes, (laughs) Roadrunner and Coyote scenario where the Mexican police and soldiers are always chasing the cartels and and suffering at their hands. So what's wrong uh, with this picture and, and narrative?
1: Well, um, let's begin by saying that, um, um, draw, drawing from, your last, from the last sentence of your question, is the fact that when we talk about drug trafficking, we're really talking about a narrative. We're talking about a story. It's a story that has been constructed, that has been um, in many ways deployed across decades, uh, starting perhaps Muslim, uh, recently from the 70s and on. And, um, and that has uh, the, primary, the primary function of explaining to us the drug underworld that otherwise would be very difficult to understand, um, or also to, um, to show us a way into um, believing uh, that certain mechanisms of, uh, of the criminal organizations or the so-called criminal organizations that, in the, that ultimately, in the end, end up favoring the very people who enunciate that narrative. This is how, um, of course, um, some famous sociologist Pierre Bourdieu in France uh, noted um, back in uh, in the 1980s when he did a long study on, on the state. And, and what the, one of the first things he said was that the state usually not only tells us things about society, but also tells us how to talk about the state itself. So the state is always the mechanism through which We understand society, but also the mechanism through which we understand the state power itself. And so uh, these narratives of organized crime and drug trafficking, um, along with other narratives of national security, right, uh, immigration, terrorism, they all function um, uh, to lead us as a society into a certain political understanding of what are the dangers uh, threatening us and and what, and how is it that we're supposed to respond and how is it that we're supposed to trust our government to respond in in turn and so um, um, so the first argument that I that I make in, in my book is that um, most of what we understand about drug trafficking doesn't really come from the field of organized crime uh, it's, it's not knowledge that is derived from the work of journalists um, or sociologists or uh, people trying to do ethnography in the field, but rather is the result, the direct result of an hegemonic understanding of drug trafficking that has been articulated in political and police institutions in the U.S. and in Mexico alike.
0: One of the interesting things you talk about uh, in your book is um, you know, this idea that the cartels don't uh, really exist, that in a way they are kind of like drug traffickers, like like businessmen who operate but are not so organized or monolithic as we're told. And you talk about um, this idea of this monolithic cartel or these monolithic half dozen cartels uh, coming from the DEA or, or U.S. Uh, agencies that kind of have invented this mythological creature, which is used as a pretext for a Militarized uh, war on drugs. So, what can you tell us about? I mean, the title of your book, the the cartels sure. not existing or not really existing.
1: The actual title comes from um, uh, various sources. One that I note in, at the very beginning of my book is actually one of the lawyers from uh, from a Colombian drug kingpin. You know, Gilberto Rodriguez Orejuela. You know, the famous uh, Lord of the Cartel of Cali. Um, one of the Gentlemen of Cali, as, as they were known back in the day. And the attorney told uh, uh, a U.S. journalist literally that drug cartels don't exist. It's an invention of the political system in the U.S. Um, to, in order to control better the information when it, when it, when, as it is brought forward the judicial system in the U.S. So meaning uh, the idea of a cartel, of course, comes from the economic field. And um, the most famous cartel that um, the people should remember uh, from back in the 70s and the 80s is the OPEC, right? The, the cartel that um, uh, brings together the, the various countries that produce oil to, in coordination uh, transnationally, manipulate the price of oil, right? Of the, the barrels. Um, so when you think of a drug cartel, if, he, if we were to follow the lead of the economic field, you would suppose that all of the producers of cocaine, for example, uh, somehow work together in alliance to bring uh, a better price, that, that price that is convenient to them um, when they set their product forward. Uh, but instead, you know, the idea of a cartel back in the 80s and on um, has been used to describe small gangs of traffickers that then, um, according to official information, fight among themselves for the control of the, uh, what they call the plaza, right? The, the, the place of work of the traffickers and the routes of trafficking. And, of course, they fight for the monopoly of, um, of cocaine and, and other illegal drugs. And so what is very interesting about the, the history of the, the war cartel is that it is, it's, a, it's been misused uh, from the very start. To, uh, to bring uh, to our attention what are supposed to be, or at least we're led to believe, these very powerful organizations that are very sophisticated, that are very armed, and yet that are constantly at war with each other and with state power for the control of the drug market. Now, when you um, when you approach that uh, narrative and, and you see... Um, across the decades, what has been the history of drug trafficking, many things come to to your attention very quickly. Uh, the first things that I mention in my book is that prior to 1989 or around the uh, late 80s, nobody in, Mexi- in Mexico, at least, would think that drug trafficking or cartels um, would be some sort of national security threat. Uh, the word cartel wasn't even really in use uh, back in the 80s. It was mainly uh, starting to be used in, in Colombia to refer to, you know, the famous cartel of Medellin and the cartel of Cali. Um, but it's not until the late 90s that we start hearing about uh, Mexican cartels. Um, the very first Mexican cartel that, um, that appeared in our collective imagination is the Juarez cartel. Um, and what is very interesting to notice is that once we started appropriating the vocabulary, with it came this new narrative that uh, traffickers somehow pose this threat to national security when a decade before that um, they were seen in collective um, imaginaries in, in, in popular culture uh, as more like anti, uh, anti-epic um, uh, heroes uh, for, uh, for uh, impoverished communities, right? So you would, if you if you pay attention to the uh, folk ballads, right? The narco corridos of the 1980s, the movies that were shot back then, you know, mostly. Uh, B films uh, that would uh, bring these narratives of uh, peasants and farmers who would very precariously attempt to bring some drugs across the border with very relative and most of the times uh, few, very little success. Um, suddenly, uh, that narrative changes in the '90s, and when it does, it overnight almost um, it, it presents to us this new idea of a trafficker now heavily organized around this concept of the cartel and and that somehow merits not only our our fear and and collective terror but um an armed militarized response so what i argue in my book is that from the 90s and on we have seen gradually in mexico the 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 adoption of this new national security policy as it's being um propelled from the u.s um in order to militarize our society into um I guess, uh, modify deeply our understanding of uh, common uh, traffickers into this new um, idea of, uh, of the drug cartel as a national security threat. And that is what I claim does not exist, right? Of course, when I say cartels do not exist, a lot of people feel that I'm, uh, or misunderstand that I'm, that I'm somehow uh, rejecting the idea of a trafficking altogether or that violence is not real and of course, that's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm proposing to uh, to um, to criticize here in my book is the actual language and with it the the policies that have um, um, been implemented in Mexico and 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 elsewhere to fight this so-called uh, drug cartels as a national security threat. So uh, what I'm showing is this idea again of the cartel as a threat. It's a it's a it's an Kind of, a, it's an it's an idea of a recent invention, and in that it doesn't really emanate from a real perceived threat coming from the traffickers, but but it's actually articulated from political institutions in the U.S. and Mexico, and it has little to do with trafficking itself, right? And and rather that it becomes part of an integral political geopolitical platform um, in order to push societies into war. And in in the case of Mexico, of course, uh, our infamous war against drugs that started most notably in, um, and violently uh, since two thousand and six, um, with the presidency of Felipe Calderon.
0: Yeah, and you know, I I, I want to get to the heart of the matter. And 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 in your book, as you describe it, it's kind of an ugly truth that a lot of people don't don't want to look at, and it's not a popular narrative. And so, I mean, what what you're talking about this narrative that we currently have is that, you know, it's the cartels are, are, are the root cause of the problem. But uh, as you're saying, that's kind of a myth and the alternative narrative, I guess the the truth that we're trying to get at the real, that's more like a symptom. You know, the, the cartels are kind of like a symptom uh, and we want to get to the root cause uh, of the problem that's causing all, all this uh, violence uh, and poverty and extraction of resources and um, poor economy. And so I guess then the pendulum would, would switch towards towards the, the state. And, you know, we can call it the security state. We can call it the deep state, whatever you want to call it. Um, but, you know, time and time again, we've seen information. This information just doesn't come out into the media. And there's people that have ri- written about this, like Alfred McCoy, um, who's uh, revealed... Sure. Um, how governments run drug operations uh, within North America, but also all the way out to Asia uh, and Afghanistan and Southeast Asia. Gary Webb, which you mentioned in your book who in the nineties broke the story how the CIA was running cocaine into LA. Uh, I believe Pablo Escobar's uh, son in, in the last couple of years has, right. has he's published some books um, detailing how the CIA to was suspect. involved with, uh, with Pablo Escobar. Uh, and I'm not sure if it was the case of Chapo or, or another um, drug dealer, but in in Chicago, I guess a few years ago, they had a drug trafficker that, that they caught, and he came out, and again, he said that they were involved uh, with government uh, agents. And so in your book, you talk about this kind of all starts in 1947, with the creation of the U.S. National Security State, with the DOD, the CIA, the NSA, and they helped um, create, the. in 1947, the U.S. helped Mexico create its Federal Security Directorate, uh, which is like the FBI. And then it had to be shut down, I think, in 1985, because it itself, I guess, was caught uh, in state crimes and, and running drugs. And then they kind of became CEN, the Mexican Intelligence Agency, in 1985-89. So can you kind of, uh, if, if the popular narrative that we get that it's the cartels uh, isn't true, can you break down then what would, what's the alternative narrative?
1: Right. Well, um, it is a complex um, explanation that, um, uh, that I'll try to uh, put in a nutshell in a, in a few minutes if, if I could. Um, I think you know, the, the key word here, um, before we even talk about drug trafficking or uh, clandestine economies, I think the key word for me at least is the fact that the 20th century has been a, it's the century of war. And I believe that, um, uh, especially in the second half of the 20th century, the U.S. and the powers that that won uh, uh, the, the the Second World War um, and and divided, you know, as we know, the world uh, into this bipolar um, uh, order, uh, understood that war uh, had to be uh, the new element for politics. Uh, we tend to believe that war is the ultimate. Failure of politics, right? Um, at least uh, as we traditionally understood politics, but uh, you know, especially from the '70s and on, with the work of uh, philosophers such as Michel Foucault, we have understood that that war has become really the the, the common expression for politicians and for um, political power, and also, of course, economic power. And so, um, as you as you mentioned in your summary, in you know, 1947, the U.S. passed the National Security Act and and with it they reorganized uh the all the structures of state uh, concerning to um not just you know imminent possible threats, but a continuous response to um to any potential danger in the world for us interests um along with this mexico as a very um friendly neighbor may, maybe uh um, a, a word that applies better it's a docile neighbor um, uh, allowed uh for its institutions to tra- to be transformed accordingly so in 1947 as you mentioned the dfs the the, the, the federal directorate security sec- secured um um federal security directorate i'm sorry um actually came into being uh with the help and training of the fbi and it and and it came to be also kind of like um um the the lesser uh, or the younger uh, brother of the cia and together they uh, they responded to the new national security era that primarily in those years focused around uh, the Cold War um, and of course you know from 1947 all the way to um, the the late 80s the Cold War had been um, uh, the main objective of these institutions and it's very interesting to notice books like for example Peter Dale Scott's um, Cocaine Politics um, in which um, he mentions how. Uh, When you remember, uh, especially the 70s and the early 80s in Mexico, not only traffickers were not um, posing any danger to Mexican or U.S. society, but they were actually, in fact, instrumentalized by geopolitical power. Um, The famous uh, federation of uh, drug um, traffickers uh, that uh, was built in the city of Guadalajara uh, in the 1970s and 80s uh, under uh, the leadership of Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, you know one, of the, I guess uh, one of the most um, notorious uh, drug kingpings of the era, uh, actually worked uh, in favor of um, counter um, uh, insurgencies efforts <laughs> in Central America. It's very interesting to remember, for example, that you know they they provided money and weapons for the Contra effort. Um, some of the Contra uh, fighters were actually trained. In drug trafficking properties uh, in in southern Mexico, and they pose no danger at all uh, to anybody. And so it is very interesting to to then see how, in a matter of a decade, uh, suddenly um, they become the enemy. And so what the reason why this happens, of course, is because you know at the end of the Cold War, the U.S. and uh, and the allies realized that they were going to be left out without an enemy to fight you know the global communism was no longer going to be any uh, legitimate enemy anymore because you know as we know the soviet union is is in crisis in deep the crisis then by 1989 of course the berlin wall falls and nobody know, uh, is going to believe that uh, communism is still a credible threat to international uh, security and global peace and so um, very quickly uh, from the late '80s and on, U.S. foreign policy starts shifting the idea of the enemy as the communist to uh, this new uh, configuration of the drug trafficker um, as the potential enemy of global peace and national security. And so many things happen in in that decade, of course. But one of the key things that uh, that moves forward this idea of the traffickers a national security threat is the killing, the kidnapping, and killing of. A DEA agent in the same city of Guadalajara, agent uh, Enrique Camarena, um, who um, uh, was uh, abducted after leaving uh, the U.S. consulate in Guadalajara, which is, you know, for me, ironically, thinking of course of the of the murder of uh, uh, Khashoggi, the journalist, uh, uh, after entering into the the Turkish embassy, and so um, when you um, when you look into um, the history of this killing, um, of course, the narrative that was built out of it um, immediately blamed the, the Mexican traffickers uh, for the killing of the DEA agent, and and along with it has been m- many cultural products uh, around this myth. Right? Uh, of course, uh, there was a famous uh, series in the in the '90s uh, that was uh, a film out of a book called *Desperado* by a, by a, a U.S. journalist that investigated. The uh, the murder and most recently the Netflix series, right, Uh, Narcos Mexico, that focuses on uh, the murder of Camarena. But many things have become clearer uh, from the nineteen late nineties and on, and uh, especially after the two thousand thirteen interviews given by uh, former DEA agents and people related to um, to Camarena. um, At least three of them uh, pointing at the very CIA as um, as the agency behind. Uh, probably the the kidnapping and the torturing and perhaps even the killing of Agent Camarena. And so what is very interesting to to notice, however, is that um, this murder brought uh, the attention of uh, the entire Mexican society um, to these traffickers as a new potential threat, and the U.S. seized the moment and and enforced uh, institutional change in Mexico. So we went from having this uh, uh, federal security directorate, the DFS, that uh, during those years collaborated, not only collaborated, but actually employed traffickers for most of the domestic policies to CSEN, right, the National Security Agency that uh, followed the U.S. lead and and incorporated this new vocabulary, uh, making suddenly by the early 1990s traffickers as the new enemy, right, turning um, uh, drug traffickers into the new enemy. Now, the other point to notice in, in this history is that Even so, um, there's a new conversation, you know, about traffickers as a new national security threat. There are actually no figures, alarming figures of violence anywhere in Mexico uh, that can be pinned on on the traffickers. Uh, If you follow uh, statistics uh, of uh, homicides from 1997 all the way to uh, 2007, the National Murder Index is actually coming down uh, in Mexico. 1997, for example, in my city, Ciudad Juarez, that has often been cited as one of the most violent cities in the world, um, was actually in 1997 was one of a uh, was a relative violent, relatively violent year that yet uh, became uh, 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 pacified, you know, as as the decade uh, uh, progressed. So when we finally arrived to 2007, Ciudad Juarez is living one of its most peaceful years in a decade. Uh, it's very interesting to know that uh, in 2007, uh, there was a total of 347 murders, more or less, um, in, 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 in that, accounted in that year. And that, that figure changed dramatically only because in 2008, the the new militarization uh, anti-drug uh, militarization order by President Calderon uh, began sweeping uh, many parts of the country and, and and one of them focuses on on Ciudad Juárez and from 2007 killings that we had in uh, I mean to, from 347 or so killings in 2007 we went to about 1600 killings in in 2008 and the only uh, factor that has actually changed is the presence of the military. So this this long history right of violence that suddenly um, appears uh, in our radar and in two thousand eight is actually um, encompassing just the the years of the militarization. But if you if you go back in time before the militarization, there is no such violence. Drug traffickers are not posing any threat, and the only uh, part of um, uh, of that threat. That comes visible is in is in discourse, is in the way we talk about them, and then in the fact that we start incorporating words such as cartel, sicario, and all these different uh, keywords that are uh, that start showing up in the nineteen nineties and that are mediating our collective imagination. And so, long, long answer for the question.
0: <laughs> oh, that's good. And I guess two issues. Then the, the the issue you talk about in the book that so it's the cartels that are subordinate to the state, which I guess would be the Mexican state and the US state. And then, as you say, uh, things are kind of fine security wise uh, and, and homicide wise regarding violence up until Calderon's presidency. And then it just skyrockets. So I, if you could just mention about the cartels being subordinate to the state and then what, who, sure. who's getting killed then in when Calderon co- comes to power? If, if things were fine and they're, they're working with the cartels, then who's getting killed? I mean, are a bunch of c- civilians, innocent people becoming collateral damage or, or I mean, what's going on?
1: Right. So um, so the, the cartel uh, of Guadalajara or the so-called cartel of Guadalajara, right? The, this organization that was built around the, the 70s and that lasted all the way till uh, the, the mid 80s. Um, was uh, an organization led by uh, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, who was a former police officer, who um, was in direct coordination with the DFS. Right. Actually, most of these traffickers carry themselves badges of the DFS. And um, now, popular imagination, especially series like Narcos in, in, in Netflix, want to tell the story backwards. Right. They they want to show you this trafficker as overpowering or or handling. Uh, the DFS agents, but it was, it, it was exactly the reverse. You know, it has been documented by uh, historians and sociologists, most, uh, uh, most, uh, I guess, accurately by, for example, sociologist Luis Astore, who has uh, uh, done extraordinary work um, uh, analyzing and, and historizing uh, the seventies and the eighties. And they would tell you, and they would show you how uh, these agents not only completely subordinated the traffickers but the traffickers saw themselves as as employees of the state meaning people who were allowed to conduct perhaps the exceptional businesses of, of, of the government not because necessarily they were profiting directly from uh, from drug trafficking but because drug trafficking was simply um, another part of i guess the the domestic security policies of the Mexican government in order to to control it to have it um, fo- follow a certain discipline and order to the point, for example, that all the way till the late 80s, Mexico was not a consumer country, right? You could not really consume most drugs that are, that are now in, in, in the markets um, available, rarely avail- available for, for a lot of people. When I was um, a teenager, for example, in middle school and high school, not even marijuana was available in my in my city of Chihuahua. And so all that, of course, changes in the 1990s, because we start undoing these controls, the state controls. That doesn't mean that um, the traffickers suddenly become very powerful, but that they adjusted their uh, their presence and their um, their work with uh, state powers. So what happened in the 90s and on as the the pre the the, the ruling party uh, dominion kind of shrunk and collapsed all the way to the 2000s when they finally lost the presidential election. Um, you would see that a lot of the governors uh, in in key states in the North and the center and and some in the South grew in power, right? So uh, you would have, you know, some of these governors, for example, in the state of Chihuahua in the state of Baja California and in in the state of Nuevo Leon and the state of Tamaulipas becoming some sort of um, um, power hubs that would self-regulate in um, uh, using state police and, and municipal police to control uh, not just, you know, um, uh, the clandestine economies, but even uh, to help organize, you know, the, the small-time gangs operating in cities like Juarez. So um, when you finally get to the, the decade of the 2000s, in places like Juarez, you would not have a lot of violence, but you would have a shift in power. So it's no longer the federal government that is, you know, subordinating these uh, drug organizations, but it's now state powers. So state police, municipal police, they're actually um, making sure that um, uh, whatever goes on in our clandestine economy goes with the least violence and, and happens, you know, in the places where it is allowed to operate, right, in the outskirts of the cities, you know, where you would find, of course, uh, the uh, the sell the, the 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 selling of drugs, you know, where gangs operate and you know stealing cars and uh, extortion in small time uh, businesses and stuff like that. Um, so what you, what happens then? In, in with, with the Calderon War, is that um we th- we were led to think that suddenly the cartel of Sinaloa had invaded, um or wanted to expand it to expand its power uh, across the north and invaded the the Chihuahua territory to challenge or dispute the um uh, this territory against um, the famous cartel of uh, the Juarez or what is what was then known as La Linea right the line. Um, but um, I, I believe in uh, that if you if you revise uh, what most of what happened in 2008 and, to, and on and in places like what is what you have is a very different story. Uh, first of all, as I mentioned before, right, uh, there was no violence uh, spiraling out of control in the city, and the violence actually begins with the militarization. Now, what was happening? Why is it that then? Um, uh, a lot of people lied, and who, who was doing the fighting, right? And, and so this could be explained in two different ways, I believe. First, um, if you follow the work of uh, journalists such as uh, Ignacio Alvarado, who's an investigative journalist based in Juarez, uh, and also the work of journalist Don Paley, a Canadian uh, journalist who wrote a uh, extraordinary book called uh, Drug War Capitalism, and also academics on, on both sides of the border, not just my work, but pe- people, for example, like Guadalupe Correa, who, who wrote a very interesting book on Tamaulipas, uh, you would find that uh, in, in their view, what was at stake, of course, was not the drug trafficking routes or, you know, the dominion of the traffickers being uh, under attack by a, by a rivaling organization, but in fact, um, that most of the places of where violence erupted tremendously with the militarization, Coincide with um, uh, process of extraction of natural resources. Um, so, if you bring the map of violence uh, in Mexico and you and you lay it out, you would find that uh, if as you intersect violence, uh, the map of violence uh, with the militarization, these places would be coinciding in in those red flags. Um, so, places, for example, of uh, like Tamaulipas are are the most. Uh, um, Significant of all, for example, uh, in in the in the southern part of the state, we have the, one of the largest reservoirs of shale gas, uh, and, and this uh, of course has been a constant, um, uh, uh, I guess, a problem for economic development because a lot of these lands were under communal property, right? Uh, the legacy, of course, of the Mexican Revolution, you know, from the 1910s um, uh, uh, and on. Uh, and what you would have is that these lands, because of the communal uh, power and the communal ownership, are very difficult to open up for extraction and for access. And so, one of the ways in which our our federal government, in complicity with uh, transnational companies, um, uh, chose to go about it is to by is by depopulating these areas, right? And so, a lot of these militarization efforts were, in fact, the uh, used to depopulate entire uh, regions of, of Mexico where uh, these reservoirs are finally able and, and ripe for extraction. And so uh, in the place of uh, Tamaulipas, for example, you would have, you know, the narrative of the zetas, right, um, uh, taking control of I mean, pretty much the entirety of the state and telling us how the zetas, pretty much like the cartel of Sinaloa, suddenly expanded its dominion into Nuevo León, into Michoacán, in different areas, but you would, what you would find is that where, where violence concentrates, where violence is, is even more um, uh, pernicious and, 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 and where um, the amount of um, uh, bloodshed you know, is really alarming, you would find that at the same time, the federal government is um, deploying uh, some important and, and expensive uh, extractivist uh, infrastructure um, um, efforts. For example, in, 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 in right there in in Tamaulipas, you would have one of the largest pipelines um, uh, built, special during the 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 wars of, the years of the war, all the way from Tamaulipas, uh, coming across the entire border and finally ending uh, in, in Baja California, right in in the in the northwest um, uh, part of Mexico. So one question that immediately comes to your attention is how is it possible that you know people were being killed by the Dawsons? Uh, pretty much every single day, and yet engineers from transnational companies were able to work um, undisturbed in many of these areas. Now, the same logic you would find if you move forward in different parts of the country. In Chihuahua, for example, right in Ciudad Juarez, right outside of the city is uh, located what we call the the, the Juarez Valley, that used to be, uh, back in the 70s, this place for farming. Were, they were They used to grow cotton there, uh, small communities um, were actually um, thriving there uh, for for about a decade. Now, because of uh, land reform and because of uh, lack of water resources, so these uh, smaller communities started disappearing. But in the end, what happened, especially with the war uh, with Calderon, is that uh, we now have an occupying army taking control of many parts of the valley. Because uh, so so so, it seems now we have a, a, a reservoir also of natural gas. Ready for uh, extraction, exploitation that otherwise could not be really taken. Uh, if you do not bring an army to depopulate those areas, you simply cannot um, uh, take control uh, of these territories. And and so the same story is reproduced in many parts of the country. So that's one explanation. The other explanation that I also uh, noted in my book is that um uh, the war became a way for President Calderon to exercise a new sovereignty, a new dom- dominion in the country that was long lost for the previous presidents of the PRI um, because they undid, uh, through neoliberal uh, reform, um, the size of the federal government and because a lot of the existing surveilling um, um, police uh, institutions like DFS were either shut down or transformed radically, um, the federal government suddenly saw itself unable to, to persuade, you know, uh, a lot of these governors who, uh, in a decade of, um, I guess, of freedom from the federal government grew tremendously in power. So the militarization was also a way for um, the incoming president of the PAN, uh, Felipe Calderón, to rule in those states where they were politically antagonistic. And so what you would have in those years, then is kind of a, uh, a, a strange version of a civil war where the federal government invades particular states that are not cooperating. And one of the very first things you would see in those years is that instead of, you know, traffickers being uh, killed or or rival traffickers taking the streets into a gunfight, what you would have is first uh, police officers being shut down. Um, uh, The very first killings in Ciudad Juarez in 2008 were most of them police officers from uh, January 2008 to about March or uh, April of that same year, you would have constant killing of uh, state police officers um, and, and an exodus of many of them who suddenly did not show up for work and left the city. And and, and when the military force finally came into, into being uh, with the deployment of, uh, of the new strategy, what you would have also is the killing of um, small-time gangs uh, people who were working under police, the, the state police, uh, into the, the criminal organizations in Ciudad Juarez. And, and there's many studies uh, that show that this is uh, actually true. You know, there's a, there's a very serious study, uh, two of them done in Mexico City by Mexico's uh, CIDEM, the Centro de Investigación y Docencia Económica, one of the elite institutions of uh, social studies in Mexico. and And what they showed First is that um, the profile of the victim in Mexico often uh, was uh, a young man, unemployed, impoverished, living in the outskirts of big cities such as Juarez that had had a history of working with uh, organized crime in a very precarious way. Those were the actual victims of this war and not, you know, this power overpowered, you know, um, uh, sophisticated traffickers that had connections, you know, with global economies. But, but it is what you have instead is something more, more similar to social cleansing, right? The military coming and killing the most impoverished sectors of the cities that were uh, organized into, you know, petty common uh, crime. Um, also, what they showed uh, in, in, at the CIDES, uh studies of the war, uh, uh, drug war years is how the, our armed forces, the military and the Navy in particular, had what they called uh, a a near-perfection index of lethality. So every time there was a confrontation between um, military forces uh, and so-called organized crime, what you would have is that um, their lethality uh, index, meaning uh, the amount of killing versus the amount of wounded people they left, um, was unsurpassed, meaning for every 10 people they killed, um, uh, or attack, the 10 people would kill, would, would die, and, and only one or two people would be left wounded. Uh, and, of course, with, zero, with none uh, to very few casualties on 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 the official side. So they were a very powerful, very organized, very precise killing machine aimed at the most vulnerable, impoverished sectors of the city. Um, uh, either in 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 the urban settings or in the um, uh, in the rural areas where you know depopulation efforts were conducted. I don't know if that also answers a long explanation for 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 your question.
0: No, this is uh, good stuff. And before I ask another question, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the book, but I mean, w- what is something else uh, really important for this whole discussion for for the two countries? um, that, that you think is is important to bring up?
1: Well, I think, you know, what, what I, what I found in my book, what, what, what actually first motivated me to, to write the book is the fact that, um, most people believe that the violence that we suffer, uh, from 2006 and on, you know, when this so-called war against drugs began, um, is that uh, drug cartels, of course, you know, are taking control of certain territories? You know that that cartels are actually uh, overpowering, uh, you know, the state that they're that they're somehow challenging and successfully um, uh, beating the state to its own game. And what it, what I found in this narrative is that um, most people believe it believe that to be true because most of our cultural uh, products were saying the same thing. Uh, so there was a. Um, a, a collective imaginary that have accepted this idea to be true. And, and, and not only that, they were reproducing it exactly in the terms very our very government was telling us uh, that it was happening, right? So if you, if you take a lot of the uh, narrative, the fiction written uh, from 2000 and on, the films that were shot, the music written, the soap operas, and the TV series that, that exploded you know, in, in the decade of 2000, and, 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 and then, of course, in the 2010s, what you would find is the exact uh, official narrative being told and recast over and over, um, uh, almost as if, you know, you had um, um, people within government writing the scripts themselves. And what is very interesting to understand is that uh, this happened because uh, there was a, an hegemony of understanding, right, a, a consensual collective understanding that that was actually true. And so if you, if you look at this phenomenon, um, what, you, what you have to find and you have to ask yourself, how is it that this happened? You know, how is it that our cultural products, almost in perfect um, coordination, started telling us the same story? And what I find in my book is that um, um, are the first stage of how this imaginary was built actually falls on the media right and And what I, what I analyze in, in I think it's the, the second chapter of my book is how the media play a, a huge role into legitimizing uh, this official narrative. Uh, a lot of, uh, of the most uh, celebrated journalists in Mexico covering the drug wars, people who have been translated, people who are in most TV shows, who uh, are, of course, you know, interviewed and who, who give lectures in Mexico and abroad ended up reproducing this very same narrative. And, and they did so, I believe, because um, in many ways, of course, it was difficult to talk about anything else, right? It was very difficult to escape the, uh, the question of the violence. And it was also very easy to come to the official source and hear uh, an explanation that made sense in most people's heads Right. Uh, so when you when when, you know, you come to, you know, the official spokesman of CISEN, you know, the federal government, and they tell you, look, violence just erupted because the Sinaloa cartel is invading Juarez. Uh, then, and then, you know, most of our cultural products start saying the same thing and people really believe it when you when you report in the same direction. Well, you are only making sense to most people. It is very difficult to go against that grain. It is very difficult to challenge that imaginary because the moment you do it, of course, you know, people feel uh, that the the very ground is being shaken. Um, And so when when some of the few journalists that I quote in my book started telling the different story, right? Telling, for example, how state power was actually uh, conducting most of the killing, how state power was u- utilizing the drug war narrative to appropriate natural resources, um, things become uh, clear and, and, and start making sense. But it's only after we break away from the collective imaginary that still instigates in, in our mind that the traffickers are all too powerful. And, and that has taken a lot of time to undo. Um, we With the recent trial uh, against El Chapo uh, in, in Brooklyn, um, El Chapo Guzman, as you know, the, the head of a Sinaloa cartel that was tried in in, in, in New York here uh, a few months ago, uh, people, I think, finally, uh, those paying attention at least, started uh, realizing that there was something strange in this narrative that didn't add up, right? Um, El, El Chapo was accused of, uh, of course, of being the head of, of, of a global monopoly of cocaine, um, and he was tried as as a kingpin that amassed an extraordinary fortune. And yet, um, when that translated into an indictment, what they accused them of is of uh, laundering about $14 billion uh, in, in, in a period of about 30 years of uh, drug activity. And, and the figure itself and the way the case was presented just simply doesn't make any sense. If you, if you look, for example, at a years of, uh, of a production of marijuana in, in the U.S. alone, That figure uh, is put to the test, right? In in California alone, I believe it's um, projected that by 2020 or so, uh, the the market is going to reach over 10 billion, and and the entire national market of marijuana surpasses, um, I think, um, uh, 80 billion a year. Um, So, uh, so it's very interesting to, to to follow these very contradictions. Um, at the at this official narrative blaming el chapo uh, for the monopoly of cocaine and yet not being able to locate any of this money not being able to find uh his fortune anywhere and finally showing us um this vanquished man you know who most likely of course was a trafficker but you know hardly is uh, is any is convincing that uh somehow he he actually led a criminal enterprise that was you know, making more money than Bill Gates and, and Carlos Slim together. Um, and so when, when this myth finally crumbles and people really start asking the right questions, you can see that um, uh, state power emerges over and over as, as our main um, source, not only for law, but also for those who are able to break it successfully.
0: Yeah, and you know, I want to talk about breaking this collective uh, imaginary, as you say, yeah, many years ago, you know, many many years ago, I started reading Alfred uh, McCoy, uh, and when I was teaching at uh, Tech de Monterrey uh, with my students, in international relations, we Skyped with Peter Dale Scott, sure. who, who you mentioned, and we, he's like the grandfather of, of uh, the academic uh, analysis of, of deep politics uh, and right. the deep state. And back then, you, you I mean, you kind of feel like a voice uh, in the wilderness, and it's not easy work. You know, we saw what ha- happened to Gary Webb. Uh, he was ostracized. Uh, and you, people call you crazy. People call you conspiracy theorists. And you start the book with the quote by Gary Webb, where right. he says, I don't believe in effing conspiracy theories. I believe in uh, effing uh, conspiracies. And it, if we could just um, uh, talk a little bit more about this kind of, it's like a cognitive uh, dissonance. And as you say, I think a little bit more and more people are, are coming to realize these truths. And I found that, in In Mexico, Mexicans more readily accept this ugly truth of the state uh, involvement and I think it 's probably because um, they 've seen the violence they uh, uh, they 've suffered the security situation kind of this this evil uh, and in america it 's like people will just call you conspiracy theorists and I listened to one of your lectures uh, that you gave in English, I think at a university in the u s and the questions uh, from I guess the students. And they were, I guess, Mexican-Americans or Mexicans asking you questions. They kind of accepted what you were saying. And this is noted that at the end, there's this like gringo American student. (laughs) And I don't know if you remember this. And it's like he's adamant uh, trying to challenge what I'm saying. He can't believe that the American (laughs) government is involved. And it's like this, the Mexicans... uh, kind of, they're like, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. This is happening. And Americans say, no, you're a conspiracy theorist. So can you talk a bit, it's like a Stockholm syndrome. So right. can you talk <laughs> about the difference and, and how do you see it, it changing?
1: Um, okay. Well, this is a great question. I think, you know, part of the reason why we have very similar, very different reactions in, in the Mexican public and the U.S. public when, when, they're, when confronting this type of analysis it go, goes back to the same origins of the way we understood this discourse and, and the meaning of this idea of national security. Um, if we if we go back to what we said a few minutes ago and understand that the idea of the drug cartel as a, as a prominent national security threat was articulated first in the United States and then exported to the Mexican institutions that then gradually accepted it and made it uh, a legitimate, um, I guess, uh, problem problem. For, for the social and political and economic landscape of Mexico. It is also almost normal to, to find then Mexicans willing to, to confront that question more often than not because it is their country that has been used you know, as the prop for this national security discourse. On the US side, however, uh, you see it from a distance in which Latin America constantly becomes the enemy, right It's constantly the other. Uh, that is threatening um, uh, your civil society, that is coming to your border uh, and, and, and to create, uh, to bring some sort of uh, uh, problems uh, with them. And, and of course, this is not just the narrative of the Trump era. I mean, this is happening, you know, from the very moment these two countries were born. <laughs> uh, um, this is the discourse, you know, that you would hear in Texas, you know, when they were about to rebel, you know, <laughs> this is the, 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 the discourse against migrants, against terrorists, um, and And again, uh, because of the separation of of the social origins of this discourse um, and the way it 's been focused around Mexico, uh, I believe uh, the Mexican society has had a, a chance to to question it and to endure some some a little bit more of a, um, uh, of a test because it 's happening right on their back here and This being said, of course it, it has been a gradual long process for breaking uh, the dominance of this imaginary in Mexico now in the US it's even more difficult because there're simply no n- very little questions posed about it uh and even though there has been very serious journalism and academic work done in in this same direction that I, as you mentioned that I quote in my book you know Gary Webb's powerful brave journalism in the 90s you know the very smart and 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 extraordinary valiant uh work of Peter Dale Scott and Alfred McCoy, um, you would would find that more often than not, they fall into into a very uh, few hands uh, because it's difficult to accept as an an imaginary of nationalism and and American exceptionalism is interposed, right? And and then, you know, uh, along with it, of course, you have to fight not just the fact that the mythology of drug trafficking is focused and centered around Mexican cartels, but you have, at the same time, the very powerful mythology of the American state as the creator and the giver of democracy around the world, right? Um, not long ago, I, I went to, um, uh, here in New York to um, uh, a performance of To Kill a Mockingbird by Aaron Sorkin, right? Um, uh, our, uh, the, the, the novel, of course, is by Harper Lee, but Aaron Sorkin did an adaptation uh, for, for this novel. And as you know, Aaron Sorkin is the same guy who wrote The West Wing, Right. The, the, the series of uh, focus on the White House and how the American president, you know, becomes this the embodiment of freedom and democracy and ethics. And, and he's surrounded by very capable people, mostly trying to do the right thing. Um, and so what is very interesting to, to see is that uh, for the American public, even though the, we are living in the Trump era, it is very difficult to to wrap around their heads around the fact that their government can also be complicit with a clandestine economy that is also, of course, capable of conducting you know uh, horrendous crimes, and that um and not only that it that it that its country has also allowed for the drug trade to 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 be so easily um uh maneuverable in, in the U.S., right? So when when you have, you know, cocaine, uh, most of the world's cocaine being consumed in the U.S. and most of the money made of that cocaine in, entering the, the financial system so easily in the U.S., you must pose this question. But, but at the same time, you have the narrative of drug cartel pulling you away and distracting you away from, from this very question. Into you know the lives of the Mexican traffickers and the Queen of the South and all this uh, and Pablo Acosta and all these big names that um that populate our imagination. So um, you have these two uh, competing mythologies that are facing each other constantly, right? The fact that um uh, the Mexican uh, government is a, is a government of corruption, you know, owned by traffickers, and at the same time the, the U.S. mythology. Telling you that you know the White House is is the promoter of peace and democracy in the world. Um, in the middle, however, there's been very interesting things that can be uh, explored, and and that I that I'm writing a new book about it, and that I'm and I'm going I'm going to be uh, devoting some pages to it. And it's the fact that um because the the mythology of drug trafficking is so uh, cleverly built around the Mexican cartels, there's a vacuum of representation in, in the U.S. about U.S. traffickers. So when uh, when people who write, you know, scripts for television or film about trafficking, drug trafficking in the U.S., they seem to me that, that they have a little more freedom because there's no me- powerful mediating structure uh, interposing their imagination, right? So what you have, for example, when you look at uh, series like The Wire or uh, Breaking Bad is that you have a more, um, original, innovative efforts of thinking the drug trade, because simply there's been very, very few political discourse trying to conduct, uh, the idea. Of course, um, drug trafficking from the seventies and on has been the space for, you know, of course, impoverished minority society, right? Um, the, the African American population, the Hispanic population, but, you know, when, when you have, a an intelligent creator like David Simon you know, or, or, or Vince Gillian, who created Breaking Bad, you, you have the opportunity to question that narrative and, 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 and break free from it. And so when, when The Wire uh, showed its uh, tremendous study of Baltimore as the city of corruption and, and structure, uh, state of exception, where you know everybody is either complicit or inadvertently facilitating organized crime and not just at the at the seller level but you know at the judicial level, at the congressional level, at the entrepreneurial level. Um, so you have a more sophisticated opportunity to 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 to, uh, to explore these issues. And yet, you know, even series so well done such as The Wire um lose uh, in, in, in viewership against, of course, you know, the invasion of these narratives that are, that are for, far more palatable for the U.S. public, like the Queen of the South, for example. You know, and, and what, what most people want is to see the, the jet-set celebrity-style life of the Mexican trafficker, the Colombian trafficker coming to the U.S. and, and bringing the reign of terror and, 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 and power. So the idea of an empire, right, a foreign, uh, a foreign uh, built empire, you know, brought to the U.S. and invading U.S. soil, it's 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 a more a recurrent uh, fiction that again brings you back all the way to the national security state, right? I I, I always think of the Queen of the South. This, for example, the the idea of uh, you know the the Queen, the powerful Queen Ping coming to the U.S. and and taking over the drug trade. Um, pretty much in the in the same narrative uh, of those movies from the 1980s. There's one called. Uh, invasion to the USA or something like that, that where Russians invade Los Angeles and Chuck Norris has to fight the Russians you know in the in, at, at the peak of the Cold War. Um, and what you have the narrative when you have the narrative of the invasion in in a country that values itself as a promoter of democracy and freedom and peace across the globe, it makes it makes sense. it makes perfect sense that somebody's trying to come here uh, to take that you know to either destroy it or to corrupt it or take over. And and so um, in the American public's mind, so um, taken by this nationalist and, and this exceptionalist narrative, um, it's very difficult to accept, right? And so I think part of our job has to be uh, to bring those questions more and more with, with more credibility, with more recurrence, um, and to allow you know that the, this uh, analysis to to take flight, not only because it's valuable, but because it's true, <laughs> and because it, it must be, of course, conveyed in, in the most convincing ways. I think uh, uh, Gary Webb attempted that in the 90s, and unfortunately, instead of um, uh, having mainstream media picking up on the story and helping and pushing pushing it forward, we have the exact same, uh, the exact uh, contrary um, uh, reaction, right? Uh, the New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post work. Uh, and put a lot of man hours to challenge Gary Webb's um, uh, journalist journalism, and and to poke hole, uh, holes into into his work to discredit him, uh, aided directly by by U.S. agencies, especially the CIA. And so it is very uh, preoccupying that uh, that this mentality is not changing yet too quickly, and that a lot of this um uh, reaction that comes from this nationalism and from this pervasive idea that that the US is incapable of committing crimes, even though we're again living in the Trump era, uh, it's, it's still uh, at play. And so we need to uh, distance ourselves from it and, and allow these voices to be uh, heard again. Uh, and, and perhaps, you know, this is what we're doing right now.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I hope, I'm, I look forward to the second book uh, and I hope the, the first book uh, gets translated uh, into English so more people uh, can read it. Is that gonna happen anytime soon?
1: Well, you know, I thought about it, but uh, the the problem with uh, drug cartels do not exist. You know, my this, this book uh, that we've been discussing today is is that I, it feels too domestic to me. It still feels too too uh, center around uh, discussions that are more pertaining to the Mexican reader. Um, so this new book, the, this this type of uh, follow up uh, that I'm writing, I think it will will, will read a lot better. Uh, once it is adapted into English, I'm writing it first in Spanish, but then it's going to be—I'm going to adapt it, uh, not just translate it, but to adapt it to the U.S. public. And the idea of this new book is—it's um, a history, it's an intellectual history of the discourse of drug trafficking. So, in, in "Drug Cartels Do Not Exist," I make this analysis, and, and I and I and I bring this. Idea uh, that uh, that you know drug trafficking isn't real the way it's been told to us in the national security era, and I put it to a test by analyzing different cultural products and media. Um, and and what I'm doing now is instead of just claiming that I'm showing how exactly it came to be, you know what institutions participated in the construction of this vocabulary and what material effects did it have, not only in the U.S. but also in Mexico. And guiding us all the way through the state of militarization and what is now called the war, the permanent war against drugs. And so, what I'm what I'm trying to do is, from the 1970s and on, is to show how this language was gradually being uh, inserted into our social landscape and how it became into use and how it started transforming our understanding of drug organizations. You know, from this impoverished, precarious uh, uh, peasants. To this powerful kingpins, you know, capable of challenging state power, and so um, I'm showing, you know, decade by decade how that was possible. What were the key moments, in my opinion, that triggered it, and 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 what effects did it have? So when you read it like that, it kind of reads like a nonfiction novel. I hope, um, and that um, and that it shows not only um how this uh, the the language was built, but how also it was completely. Um, Different from the the very lives of the traffickers of that era, um, the, the 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 conference that you saw that I that I gave at the University of Chicago, it's part of this new book, right? So what I showed in in this conference, for example, is how in the 1990s, you know, the, the Juarez cartel became a thing when you know the the Kingpin himself, you know, who was supposed to be behind this, was actually about to be killed a few months later, <laughs> and 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 while you know everybody was you know, scared of of this organization. The organization was already in decline, for example, right? And and yet, you know, this the 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 vocabulary that was used back then to talk about this organization that was about to disappear or enter a state permanent state of crisis not only did not diminish, but actually completely uh, exploded into becoming this new reality for all of us, right? And and so we never recovered from the 1990s. It actually only got worse. To the point that uh, once we got to 2007, and and President Calderon ordered this militarized war against drug cartels, the public was ready to accept it, even though there was no evidence uh, that you know they posed a real threat. And not only that, there was no violence you know being uh, experienced anywhere in, in the country, even in, in those cities that were supposed to be the most affected by drug organizations. And so, uh, what I'm hoping to do is to come up with the with the story that makes sense for everybody to read and, and to, and without any previous prior, you know, training, academic training, you know, sometimes, you know, when, when us academics speak, you know, can, can use, you know, very obscure, um, concepts and, and I'm hoping to, to make this more legible for, for the general public to follow it.
0: I just have a, a final question that's related to recent news that has, Kind of, um, it's related to some of the stuff you talk about in the book, like on uh, the Merida initiative. And this kind of has surprised me where President Am- um, AMLO has recently uh, announced two things. Uh, number one, talking of decriminalizing drugs uh, yeah. in Mexico as well. I Just a few days ago, he talked about just canceling the Merida initiative, which is, I think, uh, it's like the, the U.S. has given $400 million. I'm not sure. So the Merida initiative is just part of this project of uh, the U.S. militarizing uh, the Mexican security apparatus uh, and kind of like trying to integrate it and then leveraging it, it, I think, for for use in Mexico. So what are your thoughts on AMLO um, making these two statements?
1: Well, you know, um, I'm, I'm excited about Amlo's presidency. Uh, presidency strategies in in many in many respects. I think you know he's he's working in the right direction for for various reasons. You know when when the presidential campaign began, he was the sole candidate, not only uh, dismissing the idea of you know um, militarizing drug efforts, but he was from the start calling uh, uh, the decriminalization of, of, of most drugs, especially marijuana but but you know most of illegal, illegal drugs in Mexico and um, and he, uh, he has come through with many of the of the projects right from it, we're not even a year in, in the presidency and we've seen very important steps taken in that direction so one of the first things he did is of course um, organize, a new discussion on uh, on decriminalization, and I think it's happening very quickly. It'll it'll it, this will amount to uh, important changes quickly. But he also called off drug anti drug uh, efforts uh, from the military perspective. So there's no more drug war going on in the sense that um he's not escalating the militarization. It's actually um, uh, 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 descaling it. Um, but also he shut down uh, CEN, right? And this is very important. CICEN was, as we mentioned, you know, the, the agency that incorporated this vocabulary of national security. It's the agency that, uh, since its creation in 1989, has been uh, circulating and, 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 and enforcing uh, the ideology of, of drugs being a problem or a national security threat that merits a militarized response. And so by shutting it down and by uh, calling off the drug war, uh, he has been uh, trying to modify not just uh, uh, the discourse uh the way we talk about drug trafficking but but the actual institutions participating in it and so um, what you 've had so far is of course um, the renounce of the entirety of the national security agenda when it comes to drug trafficking now it is a very difficult and complex thing thing to do because of course uh it involves uh, many other steps, right. Uh, for the decriminalization to really be effective. I think he would also want the support of other countries in this enterprise, especially Colombia. But I, but I believe that the U S is ready to also follow in, 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 in many, uh, of these uh, leads, especially when it comes to decriminalization. Now, um, When when it comes to anti-militarized anti-drug militarized militarized efforts, uh, Amnos also done something very very interesting. You know, with the creation of the National Guard, what what he calls the Guardia Nacional, is this new civil uh, civil uh, a a police uh, corporation controlled by uh, civilian power um, that was approved unanimously by Congress, even by the opposing uh, parties uh, in Congress. And, and what he's done so far is to create this, this new corporation that will be under civilian control and that puts a deadline for all the military presence right now doing security, conducting security tasks to come back to uh, to the headquarters, to stop policing the streets. So he's, he's actually uh, proposed, and it's already accepted, you know, that uh, the military has a, a a deadline, a, a final date, uh, it's about in, in, in about five years, I believe, you know, right before his mandate ends, all military efforts has ha, have to be suspended when it comes to security um, enforcement. And so instead, what you'll have is a civilian uh, police corporation, national force that will conduct um, security tasks under civilian mandate and under um, uh, and without any uh, military guarantees, right? So, so right now, you know, right before the AMLO presidency, you know, the, the anti-drug efforts conducted by the military were completely, of course, run not only by the military, but also by uh, military uh, judicial power. So they would have, if, if anything happens, if, if, if uh, you know, soldiers were accused of committing crimes, they would be judged under martial law, right? Under uh, military rule, right? Under AMLO, that is no longer possible. And, and that is happening already. You know, any any soldier participating in, in security tasks that commits a crime that is found guilty of a crime would be judged by a civilian court, not by a military court. Um, and and so you know, it, it, altogether, it makes a lot of sense. You know, it's not only the scaling the language and the vocabulary, but it's also transforming the institutions and the role of the military. To, to, to stop it uh, from, uh, from growing into security uh, tasks, but also to bring it back to to its place, which is, you know, uh, an armed force that is only there in case of, you know, foreign invasion or, or you know, natural disaster. Um, and um, when it comes to Plan Merida, he, again, is, is right on, on the target, right? Uh, Plan Merida uh, has been, as it was for Colombia with Plan Colombia, one of the um, vehicles for U.S. hegemony. In, in the drug war, right? Uh, they were pushing us to war under under uh, their influence, but also by uh, you know giving us this um, this aid that only translated into you know more expenditures on the um, industrial military industrial complex, right? Uh, what I think the the figure is about one point eight billion that was uh, uh, given to the U.S. from the Bush administration through the Obama administration um, in in aid. For, for the war against drugs, was actually invested in, you know, in buying uh, aircraft, you know, anti-artillery um, weapons uh, from U.S. producers, of course. And, and so a lot of people got rich again, you know, in this very you know, lucrative war business. Um, and it's not that, you know, that the Mexican government necessarily received this money directly, right? But it was in many ways, of course, as it, as it always is, the transfer of public money into private hands, Um, And so I think AMLO has a very clear idea uh, how uh, the militarization of the country and the so-called war against drugs really equals more violence. And so in order to pacify the country, uh, you do not have to engage the traffickers. Of course, as the right wing has constantly uh, sold as as the only viable strategy, what you need to do is to descale your military presence, to bring control to military power, to bring it back to the headquarters and to have civilians conducting security tasks. And of course, to, um, to prevent uh, uh, the military from being used for other purposes that are not, of course, those of fighting the drugs, right? As we mentioned, right? Um, our military has been used for many other things, but not for, for fighting the drug cartels.
0: All right. We've gone way over time, but <laughs> I, I really enjoyed uh, the conversation. I found it uh, extremely valuable. I hope uh, listeners do too. Eye-opening. Um, I hope uh, you lo- you don't look at, ever again, that you don't look at Netflix, Narcos, uh, Sicario, <laughs> El Chapo the, the same way. Um, and as well, uh, you know, talking to someone like yourself, it kind of confirms that I, I, I'm not crazy that <laughs> that looking at this alternative uh, narrative makes uh sense and finally um i know you're on on twitter is there any way that anything you want to mention for how people can follow you or or, or best support you
1: right so i'm on twitter uh oswaldo two underscores zavala right uh, uh there's many uh, uh, to my to my surprise i found that there's many osvaldo zavalas out there one of them is a uh, it's a it's a judge and the it's an attorney at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. <laughs> so I'm not him, uh, but uh, but I also will do uh, a lot of work, uh, not just in academia, but in uh, in mainstream journalism. I, I have um, a monthly essay uh, at Proceso magazine, which is the, this political magazine out of Mexico City. Uh, this week, actually, I have a, a new essay on on the TV series. That's why it's fresh in my head. You know, I wrote about. Uh, uh the west wing and and house of cards uh, and the problems of imagining uh the us presidency in the trump era and so um um so i uh, people who who are not too uh, familiar with academic work can follow my my more accessible work uh in mainstream media process also has a really nice thing that it, that it groups all my essays on in one single page in in the website so they can they can find them there too
0: all right. I, I hope you continue uh, the work. It's it's a good work, brave work. We need more people uh, like this, and hopefully, we can you know break down uh, the mental barriers and get more people uh, aware of the truth. And thanks for the interview.
1: Thank you so much for your time, and and, and hope to do this again uh, when the new co- the, the new book comes out.
0: You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.